Good morning again. Please turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We'll be continuing in chapter 3 today. I grew up watching old black and white World War II shows with my dad, especially on Memorial Day and around the 4th of July and other times about Bataan and Porkchop Hill and Men of War. Probably don't know most of those. Uh, to be honest, I found many of them very boring as a kid. Uh, cartoons were more my thing. Uh, as I've grown up and begun to study World War II more uh, and begun to piece the whole war together, I have found every individual battle more interesting. You see how they all factor into the overall war. Uh, And let's be honest, not every battle was a win for the U.S. and the Allies. For instance, on May 6, 1942, U.S. Lieutenant General Jonathan Wainwright unconditionally surrendered all troops in the Philippines to the Japanese. They had been pushed back to the last Allied-held island of the Philippines, Corregidor, and they were taking heavy casualties. And so there was an unconditional surrender. 11,500 Allied troops were surrendered into the hands of the Japanese who didn't exactly have the concept of a POW uh, or honor for prisoners. That island would not be taken, retaken for another three years in 1945. War is ugly and uncertain as it unfolds. Uh, but when I read about World War II and as I continue to study it, I have the advantage of knowing how it turns out. Uh, whatever battle I learn about, I know that the victory is secure for the Allies. On September 8, 1943, Uh, Mussolini will be dead, and Italy will surrender. May 7th, 1945, Germany will surrender. A few months later, September 2nd, 1945, Japan will surrender. World War II will be over. Uh, I know that the Allies will win, no matter what happens along the way. And part of what makes war in Europe today so unnerving as we think about Ukraine and Russia is that we don't know how it will end. We don't know when it will end, and we don't know what the world will look like when everything settles down. Uh, There's a lot of unknown for us right now, uh, and it's it's hard for us at times even to know what's actually going on on the ground, much less what's going to happen tomorrow. But as we turn to our text in Mark's Gospel today, uh, we will find an assurance. Uh, We will find something that can fortify our souls. We get a glimpse of the depth of the victory that our Lord Jesus Christ does and will accomplish. And we find a a dire warning as well for those who would see this glorious Christ and then wholesale reject him. So let's look together at Mark chapter 3. I'll start in verse 20 where we left off last and read through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. 
And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mothers, who are, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my, my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your very great and precious word. Thank you that in a world of lies, your word is true. That you are the God of all truth. That we can rest our souls on the things that you say, knowing that you will never fail. You will never lie. There is not even the smallest speck of evil within you, Lord. You are unchanging. You are our confidence and so we hang on your every word. I pray that you would instruct us this morning through your word, teach us, strengthen our hearts in our day, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In light of the text that we're looking at today, I think one of the key things we can take home is that we must trust that Jesus is holy and will be victorious against every opposing power. We want to trust that. We want to trust that he's holy and that he will be victorious. We want to look first at the conquest of Jesus in this first section, and then I want to look at the consequences of Jesus, consequences that he came. Let's look first at the conquest of Jesus. Now, of course, I've read a large section of text here from 20 to 35, and we're not going to cover it all today, uh, but I believe that these passages are meant to be read together. They're meant to be understood together. Uh, Mark here and in other places in his gospel, he uses a technique that some people call sandwiching. Now, of course, you know what a sandwich is. Uh, with it being getting close to uh, St. Patrick's Day, there's corned beef out, and so I, I couldn't resist making a Reuben sandwich. And you know, you've got the you've got the bread on either side, and you've got the meat and the sauerkraut and the Swiss cheese and Thousand Island dressing, everything else all smashed together. Uh, you get the idea of what a sandwich is. I didn't have to explain it, but I did that for free. Uh, you've, you've got the, the bread on the outside and, and a lot of good stuff on the inside. And uh, there, there's a technique in telling stories that is similar to that. And Mark is going to use that again and again. Uh, there, uh, you'll have, he'll have two connected stories. And then there's going to be another story that seems to almost interrupt those. Uh, and... Uh, what he's doing is, is bringing these together. And, and we'll see this next week. We're going to continue on in the same text next week. 
There's really two responses that are negative to Jesus. Mark has been putting Christ before us over and over and over again in his gospel, telling us who he is, and we're going to see two negative responses to Jesus. Uh, The one that we'll look at today from the scribes is dire. It's very serious. And through that, as we look at these responses, we'll also see that Mark is teaching us more about who Jesus is and why we should trust him. So let's start then with our our first response to Jesus today. See the response of the the scribes to Jesus, and then we'll learn about his conquest in light of that. So notice in verse 22, the scribes uh, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, they're going to make an accusation here, but notice they come down from Jerusalem. Jesus is up in the area of Galilee, uh, he's up by the Sea of Galilee, and uh, he's, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's casting out demons, and the scribes come down from Jerusalem. I mean, we th- often think of north being up. They're coming north, but uh, Jerusalem's on a mountain, so elevation-wise, they're coming down. Uh, and they're coming on official business. Uh, they are coming essentially as a delegation. They've been hearing about who this Jesus is and they are, are going to continue to press the, the counter-offensive that they have been, the Pharisees and the scribes have throughout. They are coming here to judge Jesus. And their accusation comes as a two-pronged charge. It says that they are saying that he is possessed by Beelzebul, And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So, first of all, he's possessed. Second of all, it's that possession that is the power by which he drives out demons. Uh, The name Beelzebul here, it's somewhat lost to us exactly what it means, where it derives from, but it's very possible that the first part of it, Beel, comes from the name we've heard throughout all the Old Testament, Baal, uh, the, the Canaanite deity, uh, and, and the Hebrew word zebul could come from uh, the idea of a household or a dynasty. And so you might think of it as Baal over his household or his dynasty. That, that's a possible meaning to the name here. It's, it's odd to us. We don't see it beforehand. Uh, and these arguments, as they come at Jesus, uh, seems to be something along the lines of it takes one to know one. You know, it, it's by the power of Satan that he's casting out Satan. I think one thing that's striking as we see this is that they're not coming and denying that Jesus is doing that. They're not saying that he's got a sleight of hand or some sort of trick. It's undeniable. Jesus is healing people right before people's eyes. Uh, the, The Pharisees are in some of these synagogues and they've known these people for years and years and years and now all of a sudden they can walk. All of a sudden they can see. Jesus is performing miracles that cannot be denied. They are irrefutable. And so they have to come with another tactic. They, have to, they can't deny that the miracles are happening, so they have to come up with some other argument. And they charge Jesus with being possessed and working under Satan's influence. Jesus responds to both of these. He responds pretty directly to both of these charges. Uh, in, his, in his first response, 
he will say that Satan would not cast out Satan. See that in verses 23 and 26? And then he's going to follow up and press it farther. He tells us in verse 27 that he will conquer Satan. So the first thing he asks here in response to them is how can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus gives us two images that are small parables uh, to point to this. And they mean essentially the same thing. He says, a kingdom divided cannot stand, and a house divided cannot stand. I mean, think about our own nation during the Civil War in the 1860s. The North and the South fighting each other. Between both the North and the South, some estimates say that 620,000 American soldiers died. Massive loss. One of the graces of God on our nation during those days is that we were not invaded by a foreign nation. Could you imagine what would have happened if we had been invaded by another nation at that time? Uh, it's a mercy of God that we weren't. Uh, you get the idea. A, a nation divided against itself cannot stand. It can't continue a, a war front outside of itself. A kingdom at war with itself cannot stand. The picture is clear here from Jesus. Uh, this first response that Jesus makes points us to how ludicrous the argument is. Uh, it doesn't even make sense on the face of it, Jesus says. If Satan has arisen up against himself, then he is coming to an end. Their argument can't be true. Satan would never be so foolish as to operate that way. But there's more here. Since Jesus is addressing the topic of Satan, he has another parable for them. Uh, and this, I think, is our next response that he gives. He argues that he will conquer Satan. Verse 27, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Uh, Jesus says that, uh, that there's no way to plunder a strong man's house unless he is first incapacitated. Uh, he's first bound. Now in light of what Jesus has just been arguing, uh, the strong man here almost certainly is referring to Satan. Uh, and if that is the case, then what is Jesus getting at here? Uh, well, Jesus has just argued that Satan, first of all, would not combat Satan. So I think by necessary implication, Jesus is saying that the power by which he does this is some other power. It's not the power of Satan. Uh, and Mark has been telling us along throughout his gospel, even through the mouths of demons, that Jesus is the Holy One of God. That's chapter 1, verse 24. The demons also say that he's the Son of God, chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus is holy and he is God. And he has the inherent power to dispel dark spirits. And as we'll continue to see as we move on in this passage, he is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus does not need the power of Satan to defeat demons. He has that power in himself. He has that power and he will overcome Satan himself. That's already evident as you're reading this gospel. The demons are shrieking and fleeing before him. Now, as we read this parable, he describes a strong man as being bound. Does that mean that Satan currently, now today, is bound? I think as we read all of the New Testament... I think the answer has to be something like yes and no. Uh, there's uh, some reality in which Satan, Jesus has conquered Satan already, 
and yet he is still very active today. Now, whether you interpret the plundering of the strong man's house as exercising demons and casting them out of their dwelling places, or plundering the house as taking those uh, who have been taken captive by Satan, Jesus is certainly doing both of those things in his earthly ministry. That's on display in the ministry of Jesus. This strong man is not able to overcome Jesus. At the same time, as we look at Acts and the apostles, uh, the epistles, excuse me, we see that Satan is still alive, he's, he's active, he's uh, working in destructive ways even after the ministry of Jesus. So some way he's overcome and some way he's still active. I put together a list here and th this is not exhaustive. These are the ways that Satan is still active uh, even after the earthly ministry of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. 1 Peter 5.8 He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 2 Corinthians 2.11 He schemes to harm struggling Christians. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 He hinders good Christian endeavors. Paul's ministry was hindered by Satan there. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he acts as an unwitting tool in the hand of God for our sanctification. Paul says that so that he would not be puffed up with proud, he was given a messenger of Satan to be a thorn in his flesh. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, he disguises himself as an angel of light. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Satan tempts Christians in their areas of physical and spiritual weaknesses. 1 Timothy 4, 1, he inspires false and harmful teaching. 2 Timothy 2.26, he ensnares false teachers to do his will. All these examples are taken from the apostles Peter and Paul. So in whatever way Jesus has bound Satan, it does not mean that Satan is out of commission for eternity at this point. Jesus certainly does overpower Satan, and that's undeniably for our good. Now, now what way, in what way has Jesus overcome Satan? First, in his temptation, he refused to, to succumb to Satan's temptation to sin. He bested Satan at his favorite game. He remained faithful where Adam and Eve failed. Then, at the cross, Jesus gained the decisive victory over Satan. In his death, Jesus dealt the death blow to the serpent. Genesis 3.15 tells us that the serpent would crush the heel of the seed of the woman, and that this seed would crush his head. It would be at the cross that Jesus would pay for the penalty of sin and would therefore cancel the record of debt that was held against us. And Colossians 2, 14 and 15 tell us that and go on further to say that thus the rulers and authorities, those dark spiritual beings, they were disarmed and put to an open shame there at the cross. And in his resurrection, Jesus would triumph over death itself, not to mention Satan and his schemes. So devastating was the work of Jesus to the power and schemes of Satan that John could speak of Jesus' mission this way in, in 1 John 3.8. He says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. As we keep reading in Revelation, we'll see that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. His influence will be cut off during the millennial reign of Christ. And then, after the final rebellion, he will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. 
So we should see that, the, that Satan, the strong man, is overpowered. He has been decisively beaten. And yet, he's still able to inflict harm. Now, I'm sure you've heard this uh, reality before, uh, that a, a venomous snake can still bite you even after its head has been cut off. There are stories of people who have been bitten and killed by poisonous snakes uh, when those snakes have had their heads cut off for over an hour. Uh, the, the reflexes continue. Uh, that's something of a picture here. Satan has been decisively beaten. Uh, his time is limited. Uh, but at this point, he is still inflicting a lot of damage in this world. So, what do we do? What, what do we do in light of this reality of, of Satan's work? First, we trust in the victory of Jesus. Satan has no claim over the child of God. He cannot do any harm to us beyond what God allows. Next, we see that Peter tells us to resist the devil firm in our faith. We must resist him. James tells us in 4.7, resist the devil. He goes on farther, he says, and he will flee from you. Well, that's not too complicated, is it? What do we do in light of Satan? We resist him. We don't go along with his lies or his temptations. And we resist him even if that means that persecution comes with it. We stay faithful to Jesus. We put on the whole armor of God as outlined in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And we stand against the schemes of the devil. Our victory is in Christ, and so we should trust him. We know the outcome in advance. The, the battle can get ugly in our day-to-day -day life, and yet we know the final outcome. We might see great suffering before we reach the end, but the victory is secure. And it will not be the allied forces that bring victory, but Christ himself. That's been our, our first and main point now. As we've looked at this, we see that Jesus, he does not cast out demons by the power of demons. Rather, he himself casts out these evil spirits, and he will have ultimate victory. That's what we see here. That's the, the conquest of Jesus, you might say. Let's look next at the consequence of Jesus. What I mean by the consequence of Jesus is that the Christ event, Jesus coming, living, dying, rising, ascending, sending the Holy Spirit, that comes with consequences. It's one of those great things that, that divides the world into two camps. And in our passage today, we see that a group, the scribes, they, they have rejected Jesus. Uh, they have not simply rejected Jesus, though. They have gone so far as to attribute his miracles, and especially his exorcisms, to the power of the devil. So Jesus not only responds to their charge, as we have already seen, uh, but he goes farther and he speaks a word that has put a lot of terror in the hearts of a lot of people. Let's read this in verse 28 and 29. It says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blaspheme, blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now the obvious question that just about everybody asks as they're reading through this uh, on the first time, they want to know, have I committed this sin? Am I guilty of the eternal sin, the unpardonable sin, as we sometimes call it? 
I think that's an important question for us to ask and consider. I don't think that we're supposed to read this and then just lightly brush it off. But thankfully, Mark doesn't leave us in an ambiguous place wondering what exactly this is. As we look at the text itself, uh, I think we can see clearly what this sin is. Uh, to answer that, I think we want to see, first of all, who is Jesus speaking this to? Uh, why is he teaching this? What, what's, what brings this sharp word about? Well, he's speaking in response to the scribes. Uh, I, I think it's probably safe to say that he speaks this because they are guilty of this very thing. If, if he's bringing it up at this point, there's got to be a reason for it. Next, Mark tells us uh, why Jesus says this. In verse 30, he says in response, For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So that's what makes them guilty of this sin. But how exactly does charging Jesus with being demon-possessed constitute a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I think the mechanics and the, the logic goes like this. Jesus is doing miracles. It's undeniable. Uh, Jesus has got to be doing it by some power, so since they can't accept that it would be from God, they have to argue that it's from Satan. Uh, that therefore, Jesus must be possessed by a demon. And in so doing, the scribes attribute the nature of an unclean spirit to the Holy Spirit himself. They are saying that the Holy Spirit is a demon. That is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is naysaying the Holy Spirit as far as you could. And they do that particularly in the life and ministry of Jesus. They have come face to face with the second person of the Trinity and with the third person of the Trinity working through him and they have utterly rejected Jesus and they have called the Holy Spirit a dirty demon. They are not unsure of what they think about Jesus. They're not questioning, oh, is, this, is this true? Can I trust Jesus? Is, that's not where they're at. They're not wanting to trust Jesus but struggling with sin. They have seen who Jesus is and they hate him. They have utterly rejected the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That is where they are. And Jesus tells us that that is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They should have understood who Jesus is. Out of everybody. They searched the scriptures thinking that in them they had life, but it's those scriptures that spoke of Jesus. And they missed it. And when it came this close to their face, they hated it. A lot of people will say, oh, I love God. But when they're really confronted with the God of the Bible, they want nothing to do with him. That's the place of the Pharisees, the scribes here. They have come face to face with Jesus. And they have said that he is empowered by Satan. They judge Jesus as being possessed by the devil. That seems to be the point of no return, Jesus says here. They have so rejected God that there is no way back. Now I think with that in mind, we want to circle back and ask, have I committed the unpardonable sin? In light of the bigger picture of what Jesus is teaching here, uh, some have said, if you're worried about whether or not you've committed this sin, then you haven't. Now, I think there's some wisdom in that. 
the person who has committed this sin has a determined negative understanding of Jesus. He or she concludes in cold blood that Jesus and his impact in the world is evil. That's the kind of person that has committed this sin. That person has no desire for forgiveness in Jesus. They see Jesus himself as accursed. So I think, as you'll see, that's very different than the kind of person who is struggling with sin and wanting to trust Jesus and follow him. It's very different than even the person who's, who's struggling, don't know whether Jesus is trustworthy. In fact, we'll see this next week. There's another negative example here in the family of Jesus himself. They think he's crazy. But they will turn and believe. James himself will write the book of James. Uh, there is hope for them. But the person who utterly rejects, denounces, and hates Jesus, it would seem that there's not hope for that person. And who knows? That people, somebody like the Apostle Paul, you would think would have committed this, but apparently not. Now, he finds forgiveness. He finds restoration. We don't, we don't know, uh, so we want to continue to pray for people. But we want to take this as a warning. It's, it's not a light, trifling thing to reject Jesus. And as those who are his, this passage is calling us to remember the reality that Jesus has the victory. The victory is secure. We know, uh, as Joe told us earlier, we know the rest of the story. We know the outcome. We know what our home destination is. We know where our loved ones in Christ have gone. And we know that we will see them. We are secure in this Jesus uh, who has overpowered even the strong man. That's where our assurance is at. That's where our hope is at. That's where our certainty is when we live in a very uncertain day. When the things around us are unfolding in ways that are ugly and we can't make heads or tails out of it, we know that Christ is victorious and that he will finally have the victory. So in response to that in our lives, we want to trust that Jesus is holy, that his purposes in our life are good, and that he will win, and that we will be in him in that victory. Let's pray together.